0: Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths in your word today. I pray that you'll give us wisdom and understanding to be women of the word who obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had an IRS joke last week, but it seemed appropriate this week as well. In light of our text, so a man wrote a letter to the IRS and he said, I'm able to, un, able to sleep because of the guilt I'm feeling for cheating on my income taxes. I have underreported my income and I'm enclosing a check for $1,500. If I still can't sleep, I will send the rest. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, we come to a very important uh, passage in our study today in Romans that has a very relevant subject really for our time. Believers ought to be the best citizens of the country that they reside in, and this passage is the clearest and most direct teaching on how believers ought to respond to the government leaders of the country they live in. We have to remember that when Paul wrote this, that during that time the ruling government was uh, pagan and ungodly. Uh, The challenge is having the proper balance of knowing when to obey God when government interferes with what God says. None of us could have imagined the events of the past years where government would tell churches and families how and if they can carry on their lives or ministries. So let's take a look at this very important passage of Scripture. We saw last week the truth that we are to lay down our lives as a living daily sacrifice, and we are to love and serve each other. Now Paul goes on to teach believers how to respond to the government, and I'm grateful for my husband's library of books and notes in helping me prepare. So clearly, believers are to be submissive to the government. Verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation on themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of of this, you also pay taxes, For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So right out at the beginning of this chapter, we see the command that we're to be in subjection to the government. And this is a military term that means to rank under. And it means to line up like you're going to take your orders. This is the same word used for wives to be in subjection to their husbands. So the governing authorities refers to all government levels over us. In Paul's day, there were so many movements of rebellion against Rome and revolts, and there were terrorist actions taken and attempted murders and assassinations. For many Jewish people... Uh, they were suffered greatly at the hands of the Romans. And so this rebellious attitude towards Rome grew. And so for most, from childhood, they grew up hating their government. But now as believers, Paul tells them to submit to this government that you have despised. Nero was the emperor when Paul wrote this, a man who was so vile, he put his own mother to death. He accused believers of burning Rome. He arrested them and then used them as human torches in his own gardens. Others he had crucified or clothed in animal skins and sent to wild animals to be killed. Paul himself was clearly unjustly thrown into jail and mistreated eventually by the Roman government who murdered him by beheading him. And yet, a believer is to submit and obey the government and show them respect. But does that mean that we never can disobey the government? No, when the law of the land violates the word of God, then we must obey God and his authority in scripture over than man. We see this clearly in the case of Acts chapter four and Acts chapter five, where the apostles kept preaching, kept doing the work God called them to do, even though they were told specifically by their governing authorities that they had to stop. The Hebrew midwives did not obey Pharaoh and murder the baby boys. They feared God more than the leader of Egypt. When Elijah opposed King Ahab, he was called a troubler of Israel. So when a government says believers cannot meet to worship or they must obey a command of God, they must rather obey the command of God that says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. All around the world where governments are oppressive and much more military in might, believers still meet, often at great risk, often in secret. They still share the gospel. With neighbors and people they come in contact with, and many are found out then and sent to prison, and often greatly tortured. I follow many prisoners with Voice of the Martyrs, and there are so many uh, in, you know, North Korea, China, Iran, Eritrea. Terrible. Some of them been 20 years. Haven't seen their families. So nobody knows what's happened to them, but they stood true to proclaim the word. So we are commanded to be a witness. So if government forbids us to do so, then we must obey what God has commanded us to do. Obviously, the great challenge then for believers is when our obedience to Christ and compliance to the government end up on a collision course. We must obey God rather than men. So when government that is ordained by God tells believers what they can and cannot say in their own homes to their own children, and when they tell pastors what they can and cannot say or when they can and cannot meet, in ministry, and they forbid the church from meeting, and that is when they have overstepped their bounds of authority in our lives. God is the one who has established three critical institutions, the church, the family, and government. When government oversteps its God-given authority, we must obey God rather than man. When Jesus came into this world, Caesar was the absolute monarch, and slavery ruled the culture, Taxes were high and completely unjust and unfair. Jewish people were horrendously oppressed. But did Jesus challenge the political system? No. His focus was not on bringing social reform because he knew the real issues of life were not about politics and economics, but the need of the gospel. Jesus certainly cared about injustice and unfairness, but the gospel is the only hope for reform or change because it changes people's hearts. Knowing Jesus is what changes a person who is full of hate towards somebody into a heart that is capable of non-loving them. As believers, our role is not to be a political troublemaker, but submissive citizens who are really models of obedience. And this is clearly the point of verse 2. When we resist authority, we resist God, who is the one who established government authority. I think of our study in Genesis last fall. There was no government leading up to the time of the flood. And mankind did whatever they wanted to one another. I mean, whether they came into your house and murdered or stole your kids or whatever. There was no government. There was no recourse of any kind. And God was grieved that he ever created man and he wiped them all off the face of the earth except for those who were in the ark. God established government and for this we can be very thankful. Reasons to submit to the government. Well, we saw the first reason in verse four, uh, verse one that human government is established by God. This does not mean that God is responsible, though, for the sins of tyrants who come to power. It is only their authority to rule that comes from God. God is not responsible for what Nero did, or for what Hitler did, or what evil men in our day are doing. But he has allowed them to exist in government positions to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Rome had Pilate in power and he's the one who ordered the crucifixion of Jesus. Clearly the most evil thing that ever happened on the planet, yet God used it for good. One author put it this way, governments may be weak or strong, just or oppressive, wise or foolish, but in each case, God has his way and moves his own plans forward. Democracies and dictatorships alike are under his control. God balances one nation off against another. He uses one nation to chastise another. Nations come and go, kingdoms rise and fall, empires wax and wane, but behind them all is God overruling the affairs of men. End of quote. So we submit to the government because it has been established by God. And then secondly, to resist the government is to resist God, it is to resist God. We try to teach our children that when you obey us as parents, you are obeying God. When you obey your teacher or any other authority in your life, that's obedience to God. Well, the same way is for us in obeying the government and the authority that they've given us as, the, as ruling, that we are to submit to them. To resist the government results in punishment, verses two through four declare, and the function of government is to punish evildoers. And I think that's a real key. This is the function of God-ordained government to punish evildoers and do good to its citizens. The government is to put fear into the hearts of those who do evil. Their role is to punish those who break the law. And is this always done fair or right? Obviously not. Paul was punished by the Roman government because they thought he was evil. Clearly, God's intention for government is to punish evil. They don't have, though, the capacity to reform those who commit evil. Only God can do that through the gospel. Government officials are to serve the people by protecting them from evil. But if a person does evil, government is to serve God by being agents of his wrath. God gives the government the right to punish people by death. In verse 4, it makes it clear that they do not bear the sword for nothing. They execute wrath on those who harm other people. So the sword is a symbol of civil authority's power to put people to death. So we clearly have capital punishment taught here. Next, is it right to submit to the government? Well, it is right to submit to the government. We are to obey government because our conscience tells us to do so, not just because it's a law. Let's take, for example, that unpleasant subject of the speed limit. There are two motives for obeying the law and obeying the speed limit. We don't want a ticket, we don't want to dish out the money for the ticket and or. We obey because it's the law established by our government and we are to obey the government laws. This speaks of our moral obligation to obey God. And the government requires paying of taxes. Because, you also, uh, because of this, you also pay taxes. Because of what? Well, he's referring back to what he said in verse 5. We are to pay taxes because of our own conscience sake. Let's face it. No one likes giving their hard-earned money back to the government. That often uses it wrongly. One reason America came into existence was because of taxation without representation. Clearly, we see in this verse the command to pay our taxes regardless of the government's policies. There are so many examples in Scripture of this truth. All the people at the time of Pharaoh and Joseph paid taxes in order to prepare for the coming famine. The law of Moses had so many different taxes to support the priests, the temple, the festivals. It, it was at least 25% of their Um, income. In the New Testament, Jesus taught that it's proper to pay taxes. He paid the temple tax, and think about that. That money was ultimately used to pay Judas to betray Jesus. There was a poll tax due to Rome and uh, a government that mistreated the Jewish people terribly, yet he said, pay your taxes and worship God in Matthew 22. This is why Paul says in verse 6 that believers have a moral obligation to pay their taxes. Then Paul actually calls government leaders servants of God doing their ordained duty. Government's role is to punish evildoers and do what is right for the public by providing for their citizens. Civil servants are being paid for their services that they provide. Thank God for our police, for our sheriffs, our traffic control, our firefighters, our paramedics, and others. To not pay taxes is to cheat the government that God has instituted and our taxes go to pay people who offer us these services. Well, Paul goes on in verse 7 again to say, render to all that is due, whether it's taxes, custom, fear, or honor. So we, he is saying, we have a debt to pay, and we are to pay back what we owe. We owe taxes for personal and or property taxes. Some states have a state tax. Every state's got a federal tax, and we owe Oh our duty is to pay on, if we have imports and exports, we're to pay on that. We owe showing respect as well to the office of government leaders. We may not personally respect the individual or their policies or their um, evil intents, but we show respect for the position that they're in, that God has allowed them to be in. That then brings us to the debt of love. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not murder or commit murder, commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, obviously, the key word in these three verses is love, love love. Paul has just taught believers they are to obey the laws of the land, but what about all the people, you know, that you have to live with in the land? What do you do with them? <clears throat> How do we respond to the other citizens of the place we live? And clearly, the command is to love them. The payment of love that we owe. Um, the beginning of this verse, uh, eight, is owe nothing to anyone, and that has been a controversial or confusing verse to many. Some have taken this mean, to mean that no believer should ever have any debt at all. They should never ever borrow money and under any circumstances. But does the Bible really forbid the borrowing of money? In passages like Matthew 542 and Luke 6.30, Jesus specifically speaks of borrowing or lending money. So I don't believe the Bible prohibits lending or borrowing money. Otherwise most of us here have done a great wrong in getting a house or a car. So what does this verse mean? Paul has just finished telling these, verses they, uh, these believers they have a moral obligation to pay their taxes and respect to the civil authorities. Now he says that believers have a moral responsibility to pay every citizen of the government what you owe them. So house payments, car payments, they are to be paid when they are due. It is such a poor testimony for Christ, for a believer to not pay their bills on time. How many people mismanage their money during the month and end up failing to pay their debts in a proper, timely way? Paul is teaching us that believers pay their bills on time, but there is a debt of a committed believer that can never be fully paid off, and that is the debt of love. This is an obligation we have to everyone, not simply to believers. We are to love our neighbor, which, as we know from the parable of the Good Samaritan, is pretty much anybody you run into. We owe it to all people to show them love. We are to love others, and that is something that will never come to an end. We'll never be finished with this. The only debt that can ever be paid off is love. And once you've shown love to someone in a kind and tangible way, then you cannot say, well, I'm done. I did what I was supposed to do. It's a debt that can never be paid, and the obligation never ends. We are to demonstrate love for others by meeting their need when we are able to do so. And this includes believers as our first priority, but loving lost people is a command. Loving even our enemies is a command. The fact is a Christian's behavior is not governed so much by the laws of the land, but by the laws of love. We don't harm somebody because the law says we can't harm them. We don't harm them because the love of God should control us. So then he gets more specific uh, as we go into verse 10. Summarizes with the statements that covers everything else. You don't commit adultery, murder, steal, or covet because the reason why you don't do that is not because of some law. It's because you love your neighbor as yourself. Society has laws to restrain people, but for a believer, they are to be restrained because they love not because there's a law. I love this quote from Ray Stedman. He said, "Thus as Paul says, love will not sleep with your neighbor's wife or husband. Love will not murder your neighbor or poison their dog or throw your garbage over their fence into his backyard or do anything harmful to him. Love will not steal from your neighbor or even keep his lawnmower for more than a month. <clears throat> love will not covet what is your neighbor's. It won't drool over his pool or stew about his new Porsche." Love does not want what your neighbor has, but rejoices with him over what he has. Love, therefore, fulfills the law. You don't have to worry about keeping the Ten Commandments. All you have to worry about is acting in love, paying the debt you owe every man, every woman, every child, every person you meet. If you pay them the debt of love, you will not injure them, end of quote. So love is doing what is best for my neighbor, Which means we are not consumed with ourselves. Love thinks about others. And that brings us to this next section where we're reminded that salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So he's warning us, don't be lethargic. Wake up, believer, because salvation is close. Now, as believers, if you come to faith in Christ, the moment that you put your trust in him as the one who paid for your debt of sin, you are saved then from sin's penalty and will never pay your own debt of sin in hell. So that happens the moment we trust Christ. And then in the present, we are being saved from power, the power of sin to dominate our lives. It's in the future that we will finally be saved from sin's presence altogether. It is this future salvation being referred to here where we're in Christ's presence, either because we've died or because he's raptured us. The point is, time is running out to love other people. Paul says, wake up and get busy loving people. As one person said, we all live on the, edge of society, uh, on the edge of eternity. We can't wait to show love because time is running out, whether you're young, middle-aged, or old. We must show love now. The night is almost gone. The day is near. We are not to remain in bed half asleep. Since the day of our deliverance is getting closer, we're to get up, get busy, lay aside our old deeds of darkness, and get dressed in the armor of light. In order to love others, we have to lay aside our old sinful deeds and self-centeredness. We'll never pay our debt of love to others if we live to satisfy ourselves. And when sin dominates us, the truth is we really don't care about others because we're totally um, self-focused. Verse thirteen says, Let us behave or walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. So when an individual behaves in an immoral way, they obviously do not love people. The focus has to on that in that case is only on self satisfaction and gratification. People who love care about the needs and the interests and what's best for someone else. They don't violate God's standards because they know that would be the worst thing that you could do for someone else. Believers are not to be involved in wild parties that become immoral. They're not to get drunk, Uh, nor are believers uh, sexual sin to be their lifestyle with no restraints. Strife refers here to petty disagreements, being at odds with other people, Uh, having to have one's own way at any cost. They don't do it my way. They don't see it my way, so they're wrong, so goodbye. Jealousy towards others because you envy what they have is, again, all about self-focus. It is nothing about love. Strife and jealousy are sins that cause divisions, you know it well, in the home, in the church, and these are listed as deeds of the flesh. But... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. So when we come to Jesus for salvation, we put Him on in our everyday living. Living that means that we become more and more like Him as we're conformed to the, His image, in the way we're supposed to live. So you're more aware of your sinful response. You're more aware as the Holy Spirit brings to mind your reaction and your worry and all these things and. Hopefully we're growing and changing as the Lord deals with this. As one author put it, we need to wake up, clean up and grow up. So we must make no provision for a flesh lady. So this means you have to be proactive and think about the things that you struggle with and your own personal, spiritual battlegrounds. You put to death the deeds of the flesh. You prepare for battle by knowing Scripture that helps you think correctly. You don't allow yourself to be entertained uh, by anything that would bring corruption in your thoughts. You don't feed your materialism by spending endless hours shopping in stores or in the internet. You set limits of how you use your time. We need to start putting our energies actually in how we use our time and t- start thinking about how I may pay my debt of love to someone today. It can be in the smallest ways with the sm- simplest acts of kindness. Time is running out, is the point. The day of his return or the day of our own death is closer now than it ever has been. So let's not have any regrets, ladies. Even in sickness, even in fatigue, we can still do small acts of kindness and love to others. No regrets about paying back this debt of love that we owe to others should be what characterizes our life. Someone wrote a poem about no regrets for that moment that we stand before Jesus at the Bemis seat of Christ. That's the judgment seat, not being judged for our sin. Christ paid that judgment on our behalf. But we will stand before him all alone, no excuses. And we will give an account for how we invested our time, our money, how we used the gifts he gave us, how we served him, were we faithful. Do we do all that he called us to do? The poet wrote this. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, and I see how I blocked him here and checked him there and would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though he loves me still? He would have me rich, but I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace, while memory runs like a haunted thing down a path I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will will well nigh break. With tears I cannot shed, I will cover my face with my empty hands and bow my uncrowned head. O Lord of the years that are left to me, I give them to your hand. Take me, break me, mold me to the pattern you have planned. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truths of your word. I pray for each woman here, Lord, that we would be obedient to your word that we would be model citizens, that we would have the wisdom to know when we must obey you, when our government wants to impose things that are against your word. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that we have a debt of love to everyone who ever crosses our path. Lord, instead of um, having angry thoughts and angry words towards people we don't even know because they do something stupid, driving or cut us off in the grocery line or whatever, Lord, help us to think through the lens of scripture, and go about our day conscious of how we can do something that shows love to someone today. I pray that we would walk in obedience. And Lord, if there's any here who have not yet been delivered um, by trusting you for salvation, I pray that you'd open their eyes to understand the fact that you died to pay for a debt of sin that we can never pay for ourselves, and that they would call on you for salvation, Lord. I thank you for your word and how clear you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, ladies.